When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Wednesday Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Lavery Smith's rant with our tech subscribers. 150 rants sent in this week. We do this, we've been doing it all season. I call out on Tuesday, I say, Hey, tech subscribers, send me your rants, and you guys respond. Um, actually, kind of, kind of a headache right now. It's like, uh, I gotta do this podcast, and then I read what you guys have to say, and it fires me up. So I, I always come on here, you think I'm kissing your butt, but I, I really do like this. This is one of my favorite favorite things of the week, and we are going to run through a bunch of stuff. We're going to finish. I put a moratorium for now. You guys can send them, but I'm not going to use them unless you really, really inspire me to use it on Mayan Williams and Trevion Henderson. But I did do a poll with our tech subscribers. So I have one rant that I pulled out. I read all the ones that you guys sent. I read all 150 rants. I know you have varying opinions on Mayan Williams, who played great on Saturday and has been really productive for this team. And there was a long conversation with Tony Alford and Ryan Day at Tuesday interviews. We also got Jim Knowles. But the the main topic for Ryan Day and Tony Alford was Mayan Williams. And the most interesting thing I thought Tony Alford says was said was that he's all shoulders and elbows and thighs, I think. Which is it sort of makes it sound like you know like now you're talking about chicken, but um, delicious. Oh, Mayan Williams, he's rugged but also just delicious. That he's just he's hard to tackle. There's not much to grab onto, and like we see that right. So he runs violently. That's the word Tony Alford used. You guys do not agree on this though. So I sent a final poll. How when Trayvon Healthy's Henderson's healthy and they're kind of expecting him to be back this week, how should they be used? So we're going to get to that last, but we're not going to have any rants about it in between. I, I said, you, you're certainly welcome to send this stuff. And the, the people who get to send it, they subscribe to the texts at 614-350-3315. But I'm not sure that we're having fresh conversations about Mayan Williams and Trayvon Henderson. People remind me that I, I was late to the party on Mayan. I was uh, too skeptical about him last year. And he's been really good. And Trayvon's been a little bit injured. So... If, we're not going to go into that a ton, but I'm saving that the poll results are interesting and we have one good text from a new tech subscriber to sort of bring it all together. Okay. Also at the end, we're going to talk about 
how good Ohio State is again. People have some more interesting opinions on that. We're going to talk about the Paul Chris firing. We're going to talk about, we're going to do rapid fire. We're going to do like a run of like funny, there's a thing about spoiled milk. We're going to do funny rapid fire rants that I really like doing. We have something about Justin Fields, and I think it applies to something. We have a bunch on CJ Stroud. We're going to get into the Ryan Day nickname, punt returns. But first, we're going to talk about guys who have been sitting out. And they also, obviously, Trayvon Henderson, Jackson Smith and Jigbeck, Cam Brown, Jordan Hancock. They have had some guys they, they really rely on who have missed time this year from the 419. Ohio State has reached a point this season where they are willing to sit almost anyone except for maybe two games, Penn State and Michigan. There is absolutely no sense of urgency to being to guys being back. Hope they aren't being too careful when guys could be getting reps. This one is from the 937. A question I kind of want to know the answer to and a question that might be worth asking is Ohio State being more cautious this year or are guys really getting injured this year this often? It feels more NFL-like this year. A slight ding and out for weeks. Probably the competition, but I don't see many players playing through injury. So I do think that it is a little bit of a different world. As we get into NIL, as we get into guys having opportunities for outside money and then having people in their lives having business people in their lives you bring another person into the conversation i'm not saying that that those guys those people are uh ruling the roost when it comes to players i'm not i'm not saying they're having any impact but i'm telling you there are more people and listen there were agents involved in this stuff before right dancing around there are more people in the conversation and i think when we think about player empowerment player rights that it's not just uh, top down coach tells you this when we talk about player movement I think this is an effect of it right that you you maybe have more say over your own playing time over your own health and I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all but I'm saying it might be contributing to more caution here because you're not worried about well, I better play even if I feel like I'm not effective or I'm going to lose my job and that's it. Because if you lose your job, you can transfer and with, you know, you don't have to sit out as a transfer anymore and you just sort of have more say in your life. And that's a good thing overall. I I think it might be, maybe is a small contribution here. And I'm not saying that guys are like, I'm not playing, right? I'm just saying, I think maybe the conversation about health has become more nuanced than, well, I better suck it up and play to keep the coaches happy. I, I think we're, we've moved beyond that, and maybe it's a small, tiny effect. I don't know. From the 908, first-time texter, newish listener to the show, it's fantastic. Thanks. Thank you for saying that. I am growing increasingly concerned about the willingness to rest guys or not push them into playing when they might have a small injury. Of course, the health of these athletes is of utmost importance and a player should never be rushed back to the field. But I wonder if the coaching staff is thinking, oh, it's only Rutgers or whoever. We don't need player X because we can beat them up with the backup. So they are holding out guys or limiting their playing time. It's not a problem now, but what if guys like Jackson Smith and Jigba, Jordan Hancock, Trevin Henderson suddenly come back for, against Penn State and they're rusty and get exposed? These easier opponents make for good game reps for even the starters to get into a groove and be able to perform at their best against more difficult opponents. Hopefully that made sense. Thanks. It does make sense. And so does this, which I save for the end because it's somebody with an interesting proposition with their rant. From the 803, Ryan Day is conducting a quiet pivot in how to manage a season. He is clearly load managing by holding out guys with the slightest injury. And why not? 
They are blowing out everyone with a lot of key players resting and healing. I say good. The key is to be at maximum performance when you need it, like the last regular season game. That's an NBA term, load management. A lot of guys aren't playing as much as they used to. It's an interesting thing to think about. So, again, I always talk about, hey, I want the, you know, the, let the guys play, right? Let them play three and a half quarters. They work out. They're there at 5 o'clock in the morning in January. When you're healthy, right? But if you're not healthy and you don't want to damage anything long, long term for your NFL career or short long term, which is the rest of this season, which is November, playoff, that kind of thing, I I, I think maybe it could be just a goofy year for injuries. But maybe there's something here. And maybe we are seeing a little bit of a new era here, and we're all just going to have to get used to it. We've talked about the availability report a lot, and I'm going to throw this in because it's in the injury category from the 419. What is the big deal about the availability report? The only people that complain about it being incorrect are sports writers, and I understand it can make the job harder. In the end, it does not change the outcome nor make the fans' game experience any more or less enjoyable. Also, I see no advantage to a team really caring about it. I'd rather have Coach Day focus on game planning than the report, unless there is an advantage to working with the media. If so, I'd be really interested in what a football program can gain from staying on the media's good side. Thanks, Ethan. So I will say it, nobody cares about the media. It's not about that. I do think there is some level of transparency that makes everything better. For instance, last week, Mo Ibrahim, the Minnesota starting running back going into that Purdue game, nobody knew he wasn't going to play, and then he didn't play. And that, when you... You can't do everything for gambling, but we can't. Things are changing. Sports betting is now legal. And that is a thing that does contribute to trans the need for transparency. I also think you do owe. I think there should be a level playing field in transparency when it comes to what teams do in terms of divulging who might play and who might not play. So I guess if everybody's keeping secrets, then the, the playing field is fair. I would rather have it be the other way. I think we should have NFL-like injury reports. I don't think that's too much to ask. It does address the gambling aspect, and it gives transparency to the opponent. And I do think transparency for fans, I you, you know, Ethan says, oh, it doesn't affect the, the, the fan game experience. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, would you rather know ahead of time whether Jackson Smith and Jigba is probable or questionable or out or a full participant in practice? I I feel like that affects some part of the game because we do spend six days talking about what's going to happen. And that certainly is a part of football. We don't go radio silent in between games. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, a giant um, week long discussion. And I do the teams owe that discussion transparency, probably not. owe. would it be better for everybody to have some facts? Yeah, I think it would be. So it's not about the media. And I will say again, the media is just a is a conduit for you guys. We are a representation of you guys. So should fans have a general idea of the injury situation? Should opponents, should betters? I think betters probably should, given what's going on with legalized betting. I think opponents, I think it'd be better if everybody is open rather than everybody closed. And fans, if you say it doesn't matter to you, okay. But... Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to give fans a heads up on like, hey, this is just the health of our team. So that's where it is. They don't care about us. We're trying to hold them accountable. I, they People have stopped doing depth charts. I think that's weird. 
I mean, we do our own depth chart. We know what it is. Again, it's like, why? I'm just in favor generally. I think things are better when you provide general information that isn't giving away secrets. So that's where it is. But again, it's not because it's not about being nice to the media. Nobody cares about that. Nobody should. Nobody should. Nobody should. Nobody should. Punt returns. This is question number nine. And Stephen Means dug this out with a question to Ryan Day on Tuesday from the 419. Right now, it does not matter, but we have to figure out the punt return situation. Emekek Buka is always trying to make an over-the-shoulder catch. Punt returning is like center field. It's a heck of a lot better to be deep and run under the ball than to come in too far and have to retreat and catch the ball over your shoulder. Steven asked that specific question. This is what we try to do. Somebody on Twitter like pointed something out to me like, hey, Jim Knowles answered a question that, that dealt with something that you guys were talking about in the Monday pod. And I was like, yeah, Nathan asked it. We know. So, I mean, we know everything. We're there. We're there when the people answer. And what we do, we try to take, if we're talking about it on Buckeye Talk, and we know you guys are, are care about it, we take it to the news conference. So Stephen took it to the news conference. What's up with the punt return? And specifically asked, why don't you have a Mekek Buka come in closer? And Ryan Day said, no, no, no. He said, have him go back farther. That's what he said. He said, have him go back farther so he doesn't have to catch it over his shoulder. And Ryan Day said, with the way the turf is, if you if the punt is short and you are back too far and it hits, it can scoot and it can scoot 30 yards. And he said that's three first downs. So they really don't want a punt to bounce short of the returner. And they will live with having to go back to get one and create the over-the-shoulder catches that make everybody nervous. Now, you can't muff it. You can't turn it over. Of course, Ryan Day said all of that. They trusted Mecca Buka totally. They'll have the ultimate faith in him on Saturday. Nobody feels worse about it than a Mecca. Maybe they'll go out. They'll work on some more punts in the wind, that kind of thing. That's obviously a thing you can't replicate inside. You have to hope for a windy day. And he was standing in Ohio Stadium. The flags were blowing one way at the top of the stadium and a completely opposite way sort of at the playing field. And that it was swirling and it was a real, it was hard to get a read on things. So I don't know. I mean, I'd take him over to the stadium and punt a hundred balls at him on a Tuesday afternoon when it's a little bit windy there. But if you're asking why isn't he deeper, that's why. So Steven asked a really good question. Ryan Day does not want on a grass field, it'll hit and it might bounce a little bit and you'll be okay. It's a slick new turf. And they do not want to lose. And Ryan Day said 30 or 40 yards. He said that's three first downs. They don't want to risk it hitting short of the punt returner and, and bouncing past him. That's why it feels like Buka at times is trying to go back and catch one over his shoulder. I thought that was I thought that was very informative to get that from Ryan Day. This is a failure by me, Buckeye Talk. From the 918, all respect to Nathan and his dated friends reference with Red Ryan, but Angry Ryan should be referred to as Judgment Day. How good is that? So so Nathan and I were talking about on the Monday pod, sort of that angry Ryan Day, right? That again, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the the angry Ryan Day, and some people don't really care about it at all. But I thought it was really interesting. He was not asked about it on Tuesday. And we were saying, what should it be called? And he said, Oh, like Red Ross on Friends. And to me, Friends is not a dated reference because it's on the like on the background in my house when my wife and I are working at home. We just have friends on TBS or The Office, or because I mean we're just middle-aged people who just like sitcoms from 25 years ago. We are who we are. So, um, but Judgment Day, how good is that? We could cue up the GIF of Sarah Connor in front of the nuclear playground and just Photoshop Shiano's head on it. So Judgment Day is very good. And then someone else, uh, this was also mentioned, I think maybe by a couple people, 
instead of Ryan Day, like what what would you, what could you call Angry Ryan Day? They said, how about Ryan Knight? Like day and night, like in the day he's nice, and then Angry Ryan Day is Ryan Knight. And I was like, wow, that is very simple and should have been thought of by somebody live on the podcast who gets paid to talk about Ohio State football. But I have been bad on this. Last year, we did a whole series in the offseason on the Browns about how the it was before the Baker, before the Deshaun Watson trade when Baker Mayfield, they didn't pick up his, uh, or they did pick up his fifth-year option. They did, but they didn't extend him. And that's, that's a very unusual thing for a team to do with a first-round quarterback. It's because they were in between on Baker. They didn't know what to do. So I called him Baker Maybe Field, right? It's like, oh, is he the long-term quarterback? Uh, maybe. Like, he certainly doesn't look like it now in Carolina. He's not playing well at all. But then when Jacoby Brissett, you know, was playing pretty well, I, I tried to make a name for Jacoby Brissett, and I was calling him Jacobably Brissett, trying to combine Jacoby and probably, and that was a complete failure. Try to say J- Jacobably Brissett. It's awful. I'm an idiot. But then Mary Kay Cabot came up with Jacanby Brissett, and then somebody else came up with Jacoby Brissett. And I, I was on Jacobably for 15 minutes, and Jacoby was sitting right there instead of Jacoby. So that's how I missed Ryan Knight also. But Judgment Day is really, really good. I, I wasn't going to pull this one, but I will I will grab this. Um, this is a theory that somebody has. I said there's no hard feelings with Ryan Day and Greg Schiano because Ryan Day said many times in 2018 was he was the head coach for the first three games while Urban Meyer was suspended. He said how valuable Greg Schiano and Kevin Wilson were to him. We know that Ryan Day taking over as head coach in 2019 did not bring Greg Schiano back as defensive coordinator. Urban would have had to fire him. You could not bring Greg Schiano back for 2019. And then Greg Schiano didn't have a job in 2019. Kind of, He said for family reasons, but he didn't have a job. You, Nobody could have brought Greg Schiano back the way that defense played in 2018. It was awful. You could not bring him back. So to me, it's not like, how dare you, Ryan? You know, I just, I really don't think there's anything there, but you guys are allowed to rant from the 225, possibly off topic, but interesting take. I think Ryan Day and Greg Schiano do not like each other. What you saw play out Saturday was not coaches in the heat of the moment, but rather their true feelings coming out. Probably stems from Day showing Shiano the door when he became head coach. I don't think Day told Jesse Mirko to run the fake, but he didn't tell him not to run it. And I think Day truly loved it. They both played nicey-nice afterward to save face, but I don't think there is any love lost between those two. That's Matt and Baton Rouge, a.k.a. the Stephen Means of the South. So, um, not what I think, but you know. Who can say you're allowed to rant about anything here? You know, not anything. I mean, I am in the arbiter. If I if I really think like, ah, oh, I can't I can't get sued because of your rant. But um, I wonder how many of you have a thought like that, a percolating. I know on the our, our sister company uh, in advanced media, NJ.com, uh, they did a pod. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but they did a pod off of it of who would win a fight be- between Greg Schiano and Ryan Day. And then Steve Politi, their columnist, I think did a ranking of uh, the five, who would be the toughest five Big Ten head coaches in a fight. And he had Brett Bielema one. Ryan Day did not make that list. And uh, again, did not, nobody was buying uh, the, the the rough streets of Manchester, New Hampshire and what that might have done for Ryan Day. So I, maybe that'll be an off-season pod that we can do. Um, there, I think you might have to have weight classes at some point, right? I mean, I just, I don't know that you can have PJ Fleck fight Brett Bielema. I don't, I don't know if that would be legal, but maybe we'll do that here on Buckeye Talk at some point. Okay. That was 10, 9, and 8. When we come back, CJ Stroud is a topic of all the rants under number seven next on Buckeye Talk. 
All right. So obviously we have conversations about CJ Stroud because he is highly skilled. He is highly important. He is highly interesting. Um, he is well known. He's a, a sharp dresser. He's a handsome young man. He's a humble young man. He's a good guy to talk to. Everybody wants to talk about CJ Stroud. So I have a bunch of them. Uh, we're a little conflicted on CJ Stroud though, as well, I will say from the 865. Okay, rant time. I can't believe the amount of time Buckeye Talk and other members of the media dedicated to doubting CJ and questioning his numbers against Rutgers. As a fan watching at home, I thought CJ did well enough and that today's game should do nothing to hurt his Heisman chances. Yes, he was only 13 of 22 with a bad pick. And I agree he wasn't sharp, but his off day never really hurt Ohio State at all. They scored touchdowns on basically seven of their first nine drives, which I will interrupt to say Ryan Day pointed that out multiple times Tuesday. Touchdowns on seven of the first nine drives. What are you going to do? Again, another conversation about the high standard at Ohio State. They like the high standard. We all get that. But touchdowns in seven of the first nine drives was absolutely in Ryan Day's head. And Ryan Day made a point of telling all of us and all of you guys that on Tuesday. Continuing with the rant. He had a lot of key completions to keep drives alive, including a 27-yard pass to Ibuka early on. Rutgers' defense was keyed on stopping CJ, and I liked that they went to the run early and often to punish it. CJ is fine, and this game says more about Shiano's approach than it does CJ than it does CJ's day. I think the idea of it doesn't matter what the defense does if it's an opponent like Rutgers, Ohio State should be able to pass all day and do whatever it wants is arrogant and unreasonable. Buckeye dog. It's what led to the 2020 Northwestern game outcome too. Greg Schiano was a good coach with a solid scheme. If he, if he wants to take away the pass, he certainly can. And it's not fair to CJ to expect him to force throws even when they aren't there. I think this game is exactly what I want to see Coach Day do in the future. If the run game is there, take it all day. Mine Williams having more yards than CJ was a choice Schiano made with his defensive lineup, and it clearly didn't work. It's also good that we have this on film because now other teams know that if they play nickel and sell out to stop the pass, they're going to get steamrolled. That's from the 8-6-5, and I think there are some very good, worthwhile points in there. I will say Ryan Day also brought up the idea there were some holding calls, right? Some def- some pass plays they had where, you know, you get a the defense commits a penalty to slow down your passing game, and it doesn't go on your passing yard totals, but it moves the ball. It helps the offense. It gets you closer to the end zone. Ryan Day also brought up they had some short fields. So it's one of those, again, I mean, I've asked dumb joke questions like that before. Like, Ryan, will you try to have more 90, you know, take over on the 10 more often so that your offense can gain more yards? So um, I, I certainly think it is a reasonable uh Interesting rant there. This is Brad in Charlotte from the 980. This is more of a question than a rant. Well, it's a rant podcast, Brad, but it's okay. How much is... Oh, I actually meant to save this for the... <laughs> this is what happens when you edit yourself. I couldn't uh, find this one. Listen, I just make it like a Google Doc and I put things in numbers. That's for number six. I want to save that. These. This is something that, that multiple people keyed in on, though. From the 614, this is still under the... Uh, number seven, CJ stuff. I think CJ Stroud is a rhythm thrower. He's at his most accurate when he gets into a groove. His groove gets thrown off and he starts forcing or sailing passes when Day goes into prove we can run it mode. That's all to say that if Day could better marry the run and pass, this would be the most explosive and efficient offense in recent memories. Someone else who thinks CJ's a rhythm thrower from the 419. I used to criticize Dave for not going to the run quicker, but these last couple weeks make me wonder if CJ's rhythm doesn't have anything to do with it. Wisconsin game, he is lights out early, and then we go run heavy, and his accuracy plummets. Against Rutgers, we go run heavy, and again, his accuracy is subpar per CJ standards. When CJ throws a lot, i.e. the Rose Bowl, he is the most accurate quarterback I've ever seen. When we run a lot, he seems to fall out of rhythm. 
this is interesting enough to me that it makes me want to ask about it. And and the rhythm of a quarterback. There's a lot of stuff that we talk about rhythm in sports and in football. Like, right, you get in a shooting rhythm in basketball. We talk about it with the running backs, right? That's what the hot hand of a running back is, which is, again, something we're going to talk about at the end of Trayvon Henderson and Mayan Williams. You work it out, kind of, and then you get in a groove and you're off and running. And we know what CJ in a groove looks like. But how do you get in a groove when a defense is dropping eight? And, and taking away the pass and saying, you have to run on us. It is an interesting conversation from the 4-4-0. C.J. Stroud has been nothing but flawless this year. He's been everything a national championship caliber team needs. Last weekend was concerning, though. I understand that there's a potential Heisman hanging out there, but C.J. looked like he was trying to force things. He looked like Justin Fields against Indiana in 2020. The interception he threw was in triple coverage and was not C.J. Stroud-like. He needs to make sure he stays focused on the bigger task at hand, which is winning the title. And again, Ryan Day says that's all he cares about. C.J. says that's all he cares about. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's in its head. I do think the rhythm thing might be there. And we have talked about the idea of getting bored. It's, it's. I don't know. Um. This is also for number six. Uh, let's go. The, the one more from Shane, who has a lot to say about CJ, and um, we're going to talk about it. It, it. I I don't know if I can read all of it, but it's about CJ's body language. This is Seth. Did I say Shane? It's Seth. I'd like to start this rant by saying CJ is by far the most talented pure passer and processor of information Ohio State has had come through the Woody, and I absolutely love watching him play. With that being said, I have two things that are somewhat grinding my gears. One. I am concerned about CJ's tendency to get bored when the run game is taking precedence due to the defense playing shell coverage with two safeties. And his doubling down that he could make that throw into quadruple coverage after the game, that was like an example of that, right? I would like to see Coach Day um, show put some patience into him because there are multiple looming defenses that could absolutely make him pay for said impatience after the bye week. Okay, that's one. little concerned if he gets bored. Number two. CJ displays terrible body language from time to time when he is frustrated and on screen watching the broadcast. It looks whiny. The close-up shots of his face and also the throwing up his arms, among other things, it looks like he is whining, and that's something that uh, doesn't work as opposed to competitive frustration. I am all for competitive frustration, but he at time appears to be frustrate, just frustrated. And I will say I, I have not made note of that myself. Um, I do think body language matters. I don't know. I don't know what the difference is necessarily between like what is good frustration and bad frustration. We do live in a world where Tom Brady is, you know, breaking stuff and chucking stuff, and and people seem to like that. So I'm not there at all with that. Um, I don't think. I don't think that's an issue. I, I let the ranter express that. Um, I don't think we're there with that. I think he is a good leader, really smart. He's certainly very composed on the field. I, I do think, and I've said this at times, I think we, the way he's talked about things, I do think sometimes he has had off-field things get in his head a little bit, whether that's too much criticism early last year, and he admitted that. He obviously, he talked about it, he heard that, and maybe too much praise at times, right, in the off-season. So I do think, I mean, he's a young man. He's a young man. He's a young man. But I do think he's getting coached up by Ryan Day, and they work through this together. I think the rhythm is interesting, and I think make sure you're not bored is interesting. And I was asking Ryan Day a bunch of questions because he was talking about 
the Wednesday game planning session when they would get the offensive group together. And he was saying that's stressful. And I said, Ryan, man, it's like this is coaching ball, man. Like, what do you mean it's stressful? You're dialing up the game plan. And Tony Alford's in there doing the run game with uh, Justin Fry and Brian Hartline's coming in with passing game stuff. And Kevin Wilson's helping oversee everything. And, you know, and there you are. You're Ryan Day. You're running the meeting. Isn't that great? But he did say stressful. And it's interesting because I almost wonder if, and, and this absolutely happened in 15 when you have so much You've got to figure out how to use it. Now, again, it's one of those things. We, we again, and this is one of my rants, we we briefly dovetail at times, and we, meaning the media at Ohio State, dovetail into, oh, man, isn't it hard to have expectations? Oh, man, isn't it hard when everybody expects you to score 100 points? And Ryan Day made a joke about somebody at the Blackwell Inn before the game last Saturday. Hey, said, like, good luck, Coach Day. What do you think, 63 to nothing? And Ryan Day was like, oh, man, you know, like he was joking about that. You know what's worse? Losing. So again, like the 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 isn't it hard to have expectations conversation goes does not go very far with me at all. Ugh. And like again, the conversation of like oh all these good players isn't it hard to find them find a way to split it up does not go very because you know what's much worse no good players. Like oh we have a game plan we don't have anybody who can do anything with the ball in their hands so I don't know what are we gonna do. But I wonder about that. I do wonder that it's you are balancing obviously not really balancing you're trying to win. Win, win, win. Ryan Day just said, I don't care. 63 nothing. I'm just trying to figure out how to get the first first down, right? And you can't take anything for granted. I get that. But long term, there is, I do think there's rhythm. I do think there's ego. I do think there's boredom. I do think there's keeping everybody happy. And and Stephen was talking this week to CJ's high school coach and uh, was sending out some texts about this, that like CJ cares about that. CJ wants to distribute the ball. He wants to be a point guard. He wants to get everybody involved. He thinks about it, right? So is that uh, too much talent, so stressful. But I, I, I don't want to say they're caught in between right now, but I think maybe they just like are working through it still and what all this means. And like Mayan Williams having an awesome game is great, but there's, you know, there's a give and take to everything. So I think everybody, I think we're all good on CJ. I think everybody, certainly everybody in the program, absolutely 100% believes in CJ Stroud. And go watch some quarterback play in college football, and you will be reminded how good CJ Stroud is. But I think maybe they're working out a little bit of what is the balance to bring out the best in everybody when it matters most. And I think that is a fair conversation to have. So. Let's have this conversation. And this is something that I have been talk, thinking about a little bit from the 740. Do you want to hear a rant? I have a rant. Oh, no, this is... <laughs> I'll just read this one. Again, I mislabeled stuff. I need a producer. You want a rant? I have a rant. Why does the brand new field look worse this year? Did they accidentally spill an entire factory of crumb rubber on the turf? So I um, had that mislabeled. But I will say that um, I do think with the new fields, right? Oh, you guys know this, these turf fields. They have minuscule rubber pellets throughout them. It's all ground up tires. If you walk on one for five minutes, you wind up with rubber pellets in your shoes. I can't imagine. These guys with their cleats, they have to probably dump out a pound of rubber pellets uh, at halftime. Um, when they're new, I do think that there's more rubber. So it looks like, a, I think it can look a little black because there's so many small black rubber pellets in the green fake grass that it can look like that. And it's almost, I think it's because again, they've gone through enough of the turf insulations. And when they switched from grass to field turf, I think that's still the brand they have. Maybe it's not, but it was field turf back then. 
there were so many, it was so new. There's so many discussions about it. We were really trying to learn about it, right? But I do think it might be that like as a field ages, like you lose some of those little rubber pellets because they wind up in everybody's shoes and then they wind up in your living room. And that almost makes it, makes the green greener because there's not as many black rubber pellets there. And so when it's newer, it's almost darker. So if that's what your rant is, I'm, am I helping? Am I helping? I don't know. Um, this is what I wanted to get at. This is Brad and Charlotte from the 980. This is more of a question than a rant. How much of CJ's success or any Ryan Day quarterback is due to CJ versus Day's scheme and playmakers? Could you allocate 100% between CJ's scheme and playmakers just to make it more interesting? And then there's one more here. From the 419, with Justin Fields struggling, though possibly due to no fault of his own, C.J. Stroud needs to succeed in the NFL. If he doesn't, quarterbacks might think the development only works in college, and Ohio State will lose out on top-tier quarterbacks going forward. Might be an overreaction, but Ohio State definitely needs a solid starter in the NFL for the run to continue. So, I'm not going to allocate the 100% right now. That is an interesting conversation, and if if we want to do something like that, I would want to bring Nathan and Steven in on that. I have been thinking about this because I said it, when Dwayne Haskins went to the NFL. I said, is this going to show us that Dwayne Haskins more, because everybody contributes to the success, is it more that Dwayne Haskins made Ryan Day look good or that Ryan Day made Dwayne Haskins look good? And I, you can apply it now to Ryan to Justin Fields as well. And you can apply it to any, any position coach, any head coach, and any player. And Justin Fields is not being put in a position to succeed. His head coach from last year was fired. He's got a new head coach this year. They have no playmakers. Their offensive line is is not great. But he really is not completing many passes per game. There was a lot. There was some discussion. I don't want to say a lot. Some analysts coming out thought Justin was kind of a one-read quarterback. Like, first read's not there. You take off. Um, I think there's been... Certainly some people are viewing that a little bit right now. But again, if you don't believe in your offensive line and you don't have guys getting open, what are you supposed to do? So I don't think anybody should give up on Justin Fields. I thought Dwayne would be good in the NFL, uh, the late great Dwayne Haskins. And I thought Justin Fields would be good in the NFL. And I still think Justin will be good. I certainly am not giving up on Justin. But I will say at the moment, I think it might be fair to say that Ryan Day makes his quarterbacks look good. That doesn't mean they aren't good, but I do think he puts them in a very good position to succeed and he works to their strengths. And when you have playmakers like Ohio State has at receiver, thanks to their recruiting and their development there, you don't always have that level of uh, success. You don't always have that level of talent around you in the NFL. And when you look, for instance... Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave are looking great so far in the NFL. There is not really much of an adjustment period for them. Terry McLaurin is an excellent NFL receiver. Paris isn't quite having the NFL career. I'm not shocked by that. Um, he didn't quite. I mean, he just was a little bit of a more more unique. You can't be more unique. A more rare NFL kind of style receiver. He's so big and physical and so fast. His hands aren't his best attribute. I'm not shocked that Paris is maybe slipping through the cracks a little bit. But bottom line, Terry McLaurin catching passes from Dwayne Haskins, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave catching passes from uh, Justin Fields. They're all good. 
No doubt about it. Now, also probably it's easier to succeed as a receiver because there's not as many factors that go into it. Although, you know, Chris Olave and, and Garrett Wilson are catching passes from um, Jameis Winston and Andy Dalton in New Orleans and Joe Flacco and Zach Wilson with the New York Jets. It's not like they're playing with Patrick Mahomes. So the receiver talent, I think, is directly translated to the NFL. What you see at Ohio State has translated. And the quarterback play has not quite as much. There's no, I mean, we can't argue that. It hasn't. So what does that tell you? I, does C.J. Stroud have to succeed? I, I understand what the ranter is saying there. But I also think maybe that you, you know, you sound like, listen, man, we're going to make you look good. And I think the real thing is like getting guys drafted. I actually think that's almost more, am I making excuses? Is that more important than success in the NFL? No, but getting drafted high based on your development and your level of play and your exposure at Ohio State, when they can say we've had this many first-round picks, this guy's a first-round pick, this guy's a first-round pick, this guy's a first-round pick, that's on Ohio State to a large degree, I think. Then your success in the NFL in a new system with a new head coach, with a new offensive coordinator – that's a little more on the player and that next staff. So I do think the idea that Dwayne Haskins and Justin Fields were both first-round quarterbacks, C.J. Stroud is clearly going to be a first-round quarterback. I think that will continue to help Ohio State's ability to get great players, great high school quarterbacks to come to Ohio State. Would it be awesome to have an all-pro quarterback from Ohio State? Absolutely. Who wouldn't love that? Who wouldn't love an Ezekiel Elliott or a Joey Bosa or a Michael Thomas um, equivalent at quarterback? Everybody would love that. But I do think if the question I asked in 2018 was, is Ryan Day making the quarterback look good or is the quarterback making Ryan Day look good? I think so far we have an answer to that. And it doesn't mean Ohio State quarterbacks can't be good in the NFL. But I do think we have an answer to that question, and you guys know what it is. It's Ryan Day. Ryan Day's at the top of that list, I think. And then obviously the playmakers really, really, really matter, and the level of you're just you know playing teams that can't cover those guys. But I, I do think that's where I would start if I was going to do the hundred percent. I start with Ryan Day, I think, given the way things have evolved. All right, we're going to do some rapid fire. We're going to do some rapid fire here. We're going to start doing this in the middle of the pod. It's rapid fire rants in the midst of the rant pod because there's too many good rants from the six one four. What does for Nathan and Stephen on Doug mean anyway? Are you saying you're Doug on behalf of them? Why not just say, this has been Nathan, Steven, and Doug for Buckeye Talk. I've been curious about this lingo for a minute. Thanks for clarification. Uh, it, it could be it makes no sense at all. I think what I mean is speaking for Nathan and Steven because I'm not letting them sign off themselves, I'm Doug. Speaking on behalf of Nathan and Steven. But instead of speaking for or speaking on behalf of, I just say for. So I think that makes sense. I don't know. I certainly don't want to leave everybody with the final words of the podcast being like, what does he mean? What does he mean? So that's what I mean. Should I say behalf? If you want me to say behalf, I'll say behalf. Actually, I won't. I'm probably just going to keep saying what I say. But that is what I mean. I hope that is helpful. And I doubt it is. Buckeye talk. This one, this one's big, and I'm going to change the subject to save myself from the question. Uh, 
And it's going to make you even crazier. John in Missouri. Hey, Doug. This week, I'm not here to rant about Greg Schiano, the Big Ten West massive talent disparity, or whether or not we can collectively agree if Ohio State is going to take home the natty. No, I'm here to rant that you, Doug, don't like hot dogs. How could you? Hot dogs can be prepped in such a variety of ways and dressed down with all the fixins. We all have different taste buds, but that hurts to hear hot dogs aren't enjoyed by you. Like, what do you enjoy on camping trips aside from s'mores? Only kidding. Love the work you all do. That's John in Missouri. No, you don't the kid. You can, you can call me out on that. Um, I also don't like, and this is how I'm going to change the question from hot dogs. I also don't like beer. I have had probably four ounces of beer in my life. I went on a brewery tour in Williamsburg, Virginia at the Anheuser-Busch plant. I think it was that. When I was a kid, when we went to Colonial Williamsburg on a family trip. And for some reason, we did a brewery tour. And the overwhelming smell of the hops to my young little Dougie nose, I can, as I tell this story, I can smell it. And I don't know if there are like some nine-year-olds who love the overwhelming smell of hops, but I don't. I Not for me, not for little Dougie. So that has stuck with me. And like the only beer I've ever had in my life was was when I was rushing my fraternity in college and we people were playing beer pong and like they hit the ping pong ball in my cup of beer. And I was like, oh, my God, I guess I'm trying to get in this fraternity. I guess I, I guess I better take a sip. So I drank like a few sips, then did not like it and I've never had it. So. I don't like beer, and I don't like hot dogs. And you could ask, am I an American? I am. I just have a sensitive palate. And the thing is, like, I don't really like the fixins either. So that's not going to help me with the dog. And I don't know if I was exposed. Maybe I secretly went to a hot dog factory when I was a kid that I don't remember. And that overwhelmed me. But I just, I don't, I don't like them. I like bacon, but I like my bacon super crispy. So if you burned the bejesus out of a hot dog, maybe I would eat it. But otherwise, no. And on camping trips, yeah, I, I'm going to eat your s'more and mine, John, because I didn't eat a hot dog. Big burger guy. So if you're inviting me over for for you know little backyard cookout, um, I'm hoping you have burgers in addition to the dogs, but I just eat a lot of chips. That's worth talking about, right? Uh, from the 304, my rant is about Mayan Williams. It has nothing to do with playing time and exclusively in a joking topic. My rant is that he needs to switch back to number 28. He is way too thick of a guy. I think it's like 220 or 225 to be wearing number three. I truly think that it's a mental block some have on him being, being not that good. You see short and bulky running down the field. It's usually not a low number like three. 28 is a bruiser number for between the tackles. Him wearing three just doesn't look right or feel right visually. That's Parker, who thinks uh, Mr. Thick should have a thicker number. This one from the 202. Are Michigan fans having more fun than Buckeye fans? I realize no sane Buckeye fan would ever trade places. But these regular season games for Ohio State seem to only come with a sense of dread. Dread that somehow some lesser team will beat Ohio State and knock them out of contention. Even victories are not enough. All games must be blowouts and performances are immediately put to the Bama test. No dramatic victories are allowed, much less appreciated. I can't imagine how that magical luck eye season of 2002 would be tolerated during these modern times. 
I'm dating myself with the reference, but as a Buckeye fan last year, I felt like a member of the Soviet hockey team watching the Michigan fan base celebrating like crazy over their victory versus Ohio State. How can we bring back the fun? George Spicer in Bethesda, Maryland. I don't know if you can. It is the price of success. And in 2002, with miracle after miracle, you were chasing a title that this program had not won since 1968 or 1970. I don't really count 1970. That you had, it was a different, we were in a different place. Ohio State football is in a different place. You were ready for a miracle. There were no assumptions. There were no expectations. But mostly, I mean, you know, then Trestle, certainly, right? Following it up, you know, 06, 07, right? Getting there, it raises a level of expectation. And then the urban recruiting, right? Now it's 14. Now, okay, that was fun, right? And also, you know what was fun about 14? Losing in week two, you immediately cut the legs out of the expectations. It's like, well, they're not going to make it. So that could be fun because it was in pursuit of something you didn't think you were going to get, and then you got it. Then Ohio State's the four seed, and look what happened. So that one was kind of an underdog season too. I don't know that Ohio State will ever have an underdog pursuit of a title, certainly not one like O2. And even 68 is, man, this is now an interesting topic, is an underdog pursuit of a title because it's a super soft. These guys were even allowed to play in 67, right? Of course, like, hey, the freshman team's beating the varsity. They know you're coming, but it's this fresh batch of guys in 68 of the super softs that nobody has seen play before. And what they do, they won a national title right away. You know what they didn't do in 69 and 70 when everybody knew who they were and how good they were? They didn't win a national title. So can Ohio State, man, this is interesting. Can Ohio State win another underdog title? I think it will be very hard. How would you, it would have to just be a season where you, where they lose early and that's what knocks the expectations down. But also we're now going to enter a 12-team playoff where one loss isn't going to knock Ohio State out of anything. If Ohio State loses and the 12-team playoffs come, and of course, I mean, we all know that, maybe as early as 24, 26 at the latest, if Ohio State loses early in the year, Ohio State loses in September, all we're going to be talking about is like, oh, there might be a seven seed, but there'll be a dangerous seven seed. And how how would they ever not be good enough to create that level of underdog expectation that Michigan enjoyed as the underdog 1980 American hockey team against the Soviets? The Buckeyes are the Soviets, man. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you will recapture that. And I think we all know what George is talking about, right? It's the joy of overachievement. And maybe like in a in a specific way, once Ohio State gets in a national title game against Alabama, once Ohio State gets in a national title game against a super talented Georgia team, I'm not even talking specifically this year, I'm talking generally. Once Ohio State is now playing a program that is better than them, and who's better than them? Bama and then maybe somebody else then maybe you would have the joy of a great victory that you didn't expect. But every other game Ohio State plays, you're going to have that expectation. So I just don't think you can look at it that way. I think it's gone. Man, I shouldn't have done this one quick. This got deep, fast. We went from Doug doesn't like hot dogs to Ohio State will never again win an underdog title and all joy is gone from from football. It's not. Because would you rather, I mean, would you rather be Purdue and have the unbelievable joy of upsetting Ohio State in 2018? Or would you rather be Ohio State and have that one 
terrible loss, and then all the other times where you were expected to win and you won, and you were chasing a title. I mean, of course you'd take Ohio State. But that particular level of fun that Michigan enjoyed last year, that Ohio State saw Purdue enjoy in 2018, I don't know if you can replicate that anymore at Ohio State anytime in the near future. Maybe not. Maybe not. That's a great point. Good rant. All right, I got to go. A lot of these rapid-fire ones queued, and I just cannot get to them all. We'll save some. From the 312, Doug, on rants, I have nothing this week. All is good. Mistakes seem to get corrected. The team balances out passing and running generally when the other team tries to take one away. And even Ryan Day seems to be getting less stubborn on the play calling. Okay. That is one of those things that's like, you guys still bring a lot of interesting stuff. There's not necessarily as many complaints, though, right? This one I definitely wanted to get to. From the 412, hey, Doug, I got a rant. I don't know if you can use it on the pod because it's not relevant at all. Of course we can. But I'm mad about it, and someone needs to hear it. And guess what, from the 412, I have been thinking about this for the last couple months because I have experienced the exact same thing. And what is better in life than something that you are experiencing by yourself, and then somebody tweets about it or says something about it, and you're like, is this universal? Someone tweeted a couple, like a year ago, about putting the butter knife on the edge of the sink kind of right like diagonal on the corner of the sink in case you decide to make one more piece of toast later in the day and you don't want to have to get out another knife and get butter on it so you rest that knife with a little bit little remnants of butter on it on the corner of the sink all day and it was the realest thing i've ever experienced in my life i thought i was the only person in america who did that and someone tweeted about it and i was like are you in my house Somebody last week was tweeting about, got to go to the grocery store and buy that bag of spring mix that I'm going to leave unopened in my fridge for two two weeks and then throw away. And I said again, are you in my fridge? This is what I was experiencing while reading this text from the 412. Is it just me or is milk expiring faster now than in the, fa- in the past? I feel like it is and it makes me mad every time. Just this past week, I put milk in my cereal and the date on the bottle was still two days away. My understanding is that milk dates are actually sell-by dates, meaning that the store can keep it on their shelf until that date. But the milk was spoiled two days before the sell-by date and it caught me completely off guard. Could the store really still have kept the spoiled milk on the shelf? In the past, I used to keep milk for a few days past the sell-by date. Now I'm throwing it away a few days before. It's driving me crazy, and I need to know I'm not the only one. Go Bucks from the 412. You are not the only one. I have had that exact experience this this year, this September. You pour the milk on. I'm a big nighttime cereal guy, not a morning cereal guy. I'm going to get a snack, got my Frosted Flakes, my Cheerios, whatever. You pour the milk on. You're clear on the date. You take a bite and you're like, this milk tastes terrible. And then you're in your own head. Is there something wrong with my taste buds? Am I reading this wrong? What's happening? And I do feel like it's happening more often than it used to. And it is driving me crazy also because not only is the milk bad, now you've wasted good cereal. But do you have to take like a, do you have to have a taster, have a milk taster? Like in the high court? Uh I guess the jester's not the milk taster because the jester's like, hey, tell me a joke. And then the milk taster's over there because he's not funny. Milk taster, come here and taste this milk. I don't want to waste if my frosted flakes. I am I could not be more with you, 412. 
Thank you. I feel seen. You feel seen. We're all heard because it's on Buckeye Talk. If you are experiencing this, you are not alone. I'm going to save some of these quick rants because they're not quick because they're too good. And we're going to have to get to them on the bye week rant. I might not even do a call out for rants next week because I have so many backlog that I haven't gotten to. I think I might just save them and and, and use them because you're too good. This is something that I want to talk about briefly from the 561. It's Todd from the 561. This is my rant. I still cannot wrap my head around why the Big Ten does not have a a fine bomb type show. Call in interviews, etc. Don't tell me the big show is that. I guess the big show is on the Big Ten Network. There is no fan interaction, etc. Um, they want this person wants a Paul Feinbaum again, who does this show on ESPN that is certainly SEC based, college football. They want a Paul Feinbaum like show, and it seems like they want it on the Big Ten Network. I actually don't think the Big Ten Network would be the best place for it because you don't want it like on an in house place. You want it to be free and open. Let's be real. The Big Ten prints money. The markets are way bigger than the SEC, and I have a hard time believing that it wouldn't work. Todd from the 561. He wants a college football show that is focused on the Big Ten. And I, this is not the first time that this thought has crossed my mind. Midwest Feinbaum, I call it. And if you were going to have Midwest Feinbaum, I think he's ba- he's based in Alabama. I think he's out of Birmingham. He is a sports columnist in Alabama before he started hosting that show. Where would you base Midwest Feinbaum? Where would you base it? What is the capital of, oh, one might even say, who are the kings of the north? Is there a place, an area, a state, a city, a program, a fan base that rules this half of college football. Shouldn't Midwest Feinbaum be based there? Right? Probably, right? You can talk about all the Big Ten schools, maybe some other northern schools. Shouldn't it be based there? And then who could you get to host it in this place where the kings of the north live? Could you find who could you find? Who could you find that could talk about that could bring a particular angle about college sports, right? Who who maybe thinks about the sport regionally and could address all those things. How could you find a Midwest Feinbaum? Who could do it? Who could do it? If you if anybody has a suggestion, who could do it? I don't I Who could host a daily college I mean a daily. Who could talk every day about college football? In the Midwest, I just, I don't know if there's anybody out there. So, you know, again, Midwest Feinbaum, it's a phrase that's been in my head for a while, but I don't know who could do it. Okay, when we come back, I'm going to do a couple more. We got to get to the two biggies about how good this Ohio State team is. We got to talk running backs, and we'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk. This is one about loaded questions was sent last week, in the, and it was Ashley and Michael B. from Austin and Columbus. They were so, um, felt so strongly about this, that they sent it again from the 512. Post-game and midweek interviews have seemingly become journalists with side hustles as analysts on podcasts asking loaded questions. They aren't actually asking questions. They are seeking validation for the analysis they provided on their podcast. Questions used to sound like, what were you thinking when you called a pass play on fourth and goal at the one-yard line? 
Now those questions are like, when you called the pass play on fourth and goal at the one-yard line, it seemed like you didn't have confidence in your run game after being stopped for third and short three times earlier. That is an observation. It's an opinion, not a question. Why try to put words in their mouths? Let's get back to asking open-ended questions, letting folks actually provide an answer. Um, I spoke to a journalist. Listen, I was like every every Ohio State reporter has spoken to a sports journalism class. Nicole Kraft hosts at Ohio State. I was like last on the list. I never. I everybody was going in. Oh, who's in that? And I finally, I, I finally got the invite. I went last week, and the thing that she asked me to talk about was asking questions in news conferences. And so, um, I could. I want an hour. I want like an hour and fifteen minutes ranting. Ugh. Don't put me in front of young minds and let me go. I'll never shut up. But I was talking about asking questions in news conferences. And I, and I do think how you ask really matters. Like there are all topics we know that need to get hit. How you ask the question really matters. So I'm not going to recap my whole uh, speech for you guys. But I do think um, to Ashley and Michael, sometimes you're, the opinion you express in the question is in service of the question. I do think open-ended is, is typically better, though, unless you are really trying to get specific because the thing that I talked about a lot is you can't put too much of a burden on the person answering the question. If you're too open-ended and you're making them do all the work, they're just going to look for a cliche to get out of the question as fast as they can. You've got to guide them toward an area of expertise where they actually can give you information that's right there in their brain. But I do agree that sometimes people are putting their opinions in the question too much. And when you put too much of your opinion in the question, you wind up them saying yes or no rather than explaining. And I think them explaining, we want them to explain. That's the whole point. So I understand what you're saying. I do think it happens too often. I really try to think about how you ask the question, the phrasing. I talked a lot about you've got to take put cliches in the question to take their legs out. So you say, I know you take every... Every opponent seriously, every week matters. You don't take any game for granted, but, and then you ask a question about Rutgers. So you, then Ryan Day can't answer, well, you know what? Every Saturday, anything can happen and we take every opponent seriously. You know that. So I think that's really important. Put cliches in the question to take their legs out. And and I do think you want to be open-ended in a specific way. Not so open-ended that they're lost. I think you want to guide them to an area, but, and I do think just because you ask something in the question doesn't mean you have to believe it. You, you're trying to get information however you have to get it. So it, you don't have to think something to ask it because maybe a lot of other people think it. And it's very relevant and you you want to ask it in that way. Um, but I generally agree with what you're saying. There is room. Listen, whatever you got to do to get good information and good answers and interesting discussion, you got to do whatever it takes. You got to be seem dumb. You've got to try jokes. You've got to put people on the spot sometimes, although I'm, I'm much more willing to do that with college coaches than I am college players. You've got to make people uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes you've got to ask a long question. Sometimes you've got to ask a really short pinpoint question. But I think about this stuff all the time, how you ask it. And I do think there are times when a lot of media can get so wrapped up in their own view, they just wind up with, Someone saying, yeah, and then repeating what they just said back to them. And that's not really information. So I know what you're coming at. And it's really important to me. I think it's really important to you guys because how you ask it really matters. Pearl clutching about Paul Christ. Big 10 rant for Doug. 
Ryan in Chicago. I don't understand all the pearl clutching about firing Paul Chris. People cite his career record as a reason to give him another chance. Since the last time he was upset by Illinois in 2019, I believe it was 13-12 in conference. In that time, the once great Wisconsin line has deteriorated and the big-time QB recruit busted. If your QB whisperer head coach can't develop a competent quarterback, can't develop and motivate lower-rated players in the roster, and is just barely over 500 in conference, then why bother dragging it out, especially with Nebraska already open and likely recruiting some of your top candidates, Ryan, in Chicago? I will say, I don't know who's pearl clutching. If you're pearl clutching and just looking at Paul Chris's overall record, which is very similar to Jim Harbaugh's, I think, um, and which is very similar to, like, where somebody made a point. That's not the point. Like, I don't care that Paul Christ and Jim Harbaugh have similar records at their two schools. Michigan's ascending, Wisconsin's descending. I don't even know who's clutching pearls. Be realistic. He's getting $11 million in his buyout. He's fine. They're not good enough anymore. And you've got to shoot for the moon. So I understand you may end up taking a step back. This may be Nebraska all over again, where you fire um, Frank Solich because he's not Tom Osborne, and then you plunge yourself into an abyss. But should Nebraska have settled for good when they wanted great? And Wisconsin's not even good anymore. I mean, anybody who's upset about firing Paul Christ, I don't know who that is. I have not seen that reaction. Who is it? Because it's nuts. Nobody should be upset. He clearly is not the guy anymore. And we talked about this a lot on the pod on Monday. But, like, if we're, I don't don't know if we're straw manning it or if people, like, honestly, be realistic. I mean, he's going to be fine. It's big boy school. Like, I can't, I can't, I dropped my my earpiece. I'm leaning for it. I can't even imagine that somebody would actually be upset over that. That seems insane to me. He 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 was going to get fired at the end of this year, so why not do it now? And Jim Leonard, the thing, give Jim Leonard the chance to do it. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing about Paul Chris that would make you say no. That guy deserves to stay. I mean, it's just it's it's like life in the big city, man. I don't have to tell you. All right, how good is Ohio State? This is from the four one nine. Not really a rant, but more an observation. In my humble opinion, I don't think there are really any big standout hot teams this year. Most years, it seems sort of seems like David would have to slay Goliath to win the Natty over Alabama or Georgia or Clemson or LSU or the Buckeyes or whoever's hot. This year, it kind of feels like there's a bunch of Goliath juniors who all have a lot of weaknesses and on any given day. Anyone among them could win, certainly the top three, and it wouldn't be a big surprise. Seems like that it might be the case for the next tier, four to ten. Seems like a uh, year where the championship is anyone's to take. Uh, what do you think? So hold that thought for a second, 419, from the 614 rant. One word now comes to mind that describes what the 2022 Buckeyes are morphing into, juggernaut. By year's end, if the Buckeyes aren't the nation's most feared team in college football, I'll be shocked. To steal a turn from hockey, this team has enforcers all over the field. It's not just about talent. It's what's driving that talent that makes me so confident in this prediction. Finally seeing Day go berserk after that late hit against Rutgers solidified that he is a leader of leaders. Last one from the 937. It's Howard and Charlotte. Ohio State is going to win the national championship. With the defense having the opportunity to gel more week to week, the balance that the offense has and Ryan Day at the helm, who can prepare a better single game plan than anyone I can think of, it's over. Ohio State currently has the talent and skill on offense that, if they decided to, could have the unchallenged best rushing or passing offense in the country. Now, bring back JSN, get Trey healthy, Penn State, Michigan, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, you name it, they can't stop them. The best version of any other team in the country loses by two touchdowns to the best version of Ohio State. Sincerely appreciate all all that you guys do. Tell people that I said, if you're not spending the few bucks on the text, you're wasting your money on just about anything else you're spending it on. Thank you, Howard, in Charlotte. We always like badgering people to get you guys notice that. 
badgering you to get the text. We do that a lot. Um, this is a long one, and I'll I'll try to run through it. Hot take from the 480. I am 100% all in on a national title for a team that looks identical to the 2019 LSU and 2020 Bama teams. I am a Buckeye fan living in the South and typically have more realistic expectations season to season. There has been a looming flaw that's been holding them back, like linebackers, DB recruiting, coaching, passing game. In the last 10 years, I only felt confident in a title twice, in 2015 and 2019, both heartbreaks. This year feels like a better team than either of those and the same, if not better, than the SEC title teams in 2019 and 2020 with what might be more NFL talent than those had. And then he, you, this person goes through uh, all the different talents. Very interesting. I just can't get too wound up in it. Um, Bama and LSU had powerhouse offensive talent that drove them to championships. They were in close games and won some tight ones. But by the end of this year, we will view this Ohio State team in the same light as those teams. Okay. I wanted to do all of that to say this. I do think if there's going to be a super team this year, and I think we would, and we talk about it. We have said LSU in 19 was that. Bama in 20 was that. Georgia last year, certainly on defense, was that. It was a super defense with an offense that got good enough. I think if there's going to be a super team this year, it is Ohio State. And I do think the, the first text that was, there's not going to be one, it's all Goliath Juniors, might be more right. There were a lot of texts about the DBs and worry about the DBs. I saved them. And I think we can do that in the bye week. Let's see how this week goes for Ohio State against Michigan State. But that's where people are concerned. And then there was another one that I saved that they have not really been tested defensively. And it's kind of not fair to do that because, listen, Wisconsin and Notre Dame, everybody said they thought they were going to be good. And then Ohio State took care of business. And then we can't say that they're bad. And someone else also pointed out that like Notre Dame's actually kind of coming around again. And that loss, if you think that's not a big deal to beat Notre Dame, it's like Notre Dame's kind of getting it together. Um, so I would say probably there's not going to be a super team. But when you think about a completely healthy Ohio State offense with the four receivers when Jackson Smith and Jig was healthy, with two running backs, with an offensive line that's playing really well, and with CJ at his best – in rhythm and Ryan Day calling the shots. You think about that offense and then a defense that has a productive defensive line. The linebacker play is really good right now. The safeties, uh, there's a lot of reason to believe in the safeties and will the corners come around? I don't know that anybody's best, anyone else's best would be as good as Ohio State's best. I think that's where I would be for sure that even Alabama's best I think there's more holes. Georgia's best. I mean, Shahan and I on the College Football Survivor Show, and again, I hope you, some of you guys are sampling that. A couple weeks ago, we said, "Is Georgia like we think Georgia's better than last year's Georgia?" And then they had two really vulnerable games. Um, just like I when I was like, "All right, I gave up. I'm in on Stetson Bennett," and all of a sudden it's like, "Okay, well, hold on a second there." But like their skill on offense that could not match Ohio State's, and I think Ohio State's defense probably can get closer to Georgia's defense. Georgia still has more talent, but I think Ohio State can get closer to Georgia's defense than Georgia's offense can get to Ohio State's offense. So, which is what the conversation, we were having that conversation all last year. We wanted to see Ohio State play Georgia. So I do think if there is a super team, it will be Ohio State. But will there be a super team? It's it, not, not guaranteed yet. But I think a lot of people are hedging that way. This is the one Mayan Williams Travion Henderson text that I'm going to read. It's going to finish off the podcast, and then I will reveal the results 
of a text or question that I sent about how Ohio State should use Mayan Williams and Trevor Henderson when they're both healthy. This is from the 919. Hey guys, I love this podcast. I moved here from North Carolina a year ago and my friend Spencer, shout out Spence, put me onto this podcast and I have loved every minute. It reminds me of my group chats and all my friends debating sports back home. So thank you for that. Thank you for saying that 919. With that being said, I've been holding on to this rant for a couple of weeks about Mayan and Trey. Can we all, both you all on the pod and my fellow tech subscribers, re- Relax and sit back and enjoy the absolute show both these running backs can put on at any moment. I am so thankful to have two fantastic college running backs on our team. They are both unique and very special in their own ways. We are even harder to stop because it gives teams even more to think about and game plan for. I know any other team in the nation would love to have these guys in their lineups. Also, you guys get too caught up in the recruiting rankings as if a walk-on didn't lead his team to a national championship last year and another a couple years ago before uh, that when a Heisman was a number one pick and helped lead one of the worst franchises in the NFL back to relevance. Sorry, uh, Doug and all other Browns people. So I think that's uh, Baker. So I think Mayan being a three- or four-star recruit and Trey being a five-star recruit means nothing once they step on campus. The great Jay Cole once said, Who's to say who's greater? All we know is they ain't the same. Those guys are not the same at all. They are different beasts. Let's appreciate them while we have them. I hope Georgia fans were not debating Sony Michelle, Todd Gurley, and Nick Chubb when they were there like we are as Buckeyes. So I think that is a fine rant encapsulation of who cares. They're both good. They're both helping Ohio State win. Any debate about who should play, there should be no debate because it's a good situation for Ohio State. That's a reasonable place to end. I read all the stuff. Trey people, Mayan people, Doug cares about recruiting rankings for too long people. I read them all, and here's the question I asked. When both are healthy, what should Ohio State's balance at running back with Mayan Williams and Travion Henderson be? These were the choices. Equal split. Ride the hot hand game to game. Travion as the lead back with Mayan second. Or Mayan as the lead back with Travion second. Ride the hot hand one. 42%. Equal split was third. 17%. So that's 59% of the people who are not really choosing a back. Right, which again is 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 our our friend uh, the texter saying why who cares don't don't choose they're both good let's go between the forty one percent of people who did choose I'll let you guess think of guess in your head all right there's forty one percent left how many said Travion in the lead with mine in second how many said mine in the lead with Travion second turn to your friend turn to your spouse turn to your kid turn to your coworker what do you, what do you think it is. Oh, no, what, do you, what, what percent do you think it is? You got it? 32% said Travion lead, Mayan second. 9% said Mayan lead, Travion second. The Mayan, the people who really like Mayan uh, text more, but there is a group of people, I mean, that's like three to one, um, that if you're going to pick a side, they still would pick Travion. 42% hot hand, 32%, excuse me, Travion lead, 
17% equal split, 9% Mayan lead. That's the conversation we'll have about the running backs for now. Man, I like doing this with you guys. 150 rants. Thanks to everybody who contributed. I have so many stockpile, I don't even know what to do, but I do know what to do. I'm not going to do a call-out next week in the bye week. We're going to have a lot of good uh, pods next week in the bye week. It's so nice when the bye, and it's not really a bye. It's an off week because a bye implies like, hey, I don't have to play. Like the Yankees are going to have a bye in the playoffs. They're going to advance without playing. It's really an off week. Again, people love semantic discussions. Hey, Doug, what else can we talk about? There's actually a semantic discussion that I saved that I could I could go 15 minutes on uh, about how we address sports teams in America, and I had it queued up, and then the quick hit rants went too long, so I'll save that for next week. Oh, language. So I like doing this. You guys bring it. I appreciate that. Read cleveland.com slash OSU. If you want to be a tech subscriber and be able to rant at me, We'd love to have you. It's a two-week free trial, 614-350-3315. But I probably won't do a call-out next week because we have so many good ones that are applicable. You know, They're not going to get stale in a week because they're kind of more big-picture kind of stuff. We'll save some of those. Um, Nathan, Steve, and I will be back. I, we might not do rapid-fire this week. We might do more of a big-picture thing, but i got to figure that out. Lots of good stories at cleveland.com slash OSU. And if you have not tried the College Football Survivor Show with me and my co-host, Shahan Jeharaja, would certainly invite you to do that. Thanks, everybody. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>